Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I am visiting with food historian and author Roger Horowitz. Roger is director of the Center for History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, and teaches history and Jewish studies at the University of Delaware. He received the National Jewish Book Award for American Jewish Studies from the Jewish Book Council and is author of numerous books, including Negro and White, Unite and Fight, A Social History of Industrial Unionism in Meatpacking, 1930-1990, and Putting Meat on the American Table, Taste, Technology, Transformation. He's joining us today to talk about his latest book, Kosher USA, How Coke Became Kosher and Other Tales of Modern Food. Welcome, Roger. Well, Lisa, thank you for having me on the show. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, wonderful book. Uh, in your prologue, you share a lovely story about your Uncle Stuart and how he urged, if I can use that word, um, if that's the correct word here, you in the direction of the book. And I wondered if, just to sort of establish a little bit of the backstory, you could tell us about that exchange. Well, Uncle Stu, uh, my mother's brother, introduced my parents. Uh, he was a friend of my father when they uh, went for Columbia students in the mid-40s, and that's how they got together. So Stu was always, you know, kind of special among among the relatives, and so I wouldn't be here except for, for Stu. Um, and he was an amazing man. Um, his wife uh, suffered from Parkinson's disease for a long time. He brought her every place. And where this conversation took place that started me on this book was a very uh, nasty, uh, cold uh, December day where my mother had an annual party. He brought uh, his wife over. It was very difficult. He had to wheel her in a wheelchair through the rain. Um, you know, really one of those evenings that, that, that you remember because of really just how hard it was for him. He had cancer at the time, curable cancer. So it was a big thing, really big thing that, that Stu came uh, that evening. And, you know, I, 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 I sat and talked with him. You know, he, he never complained about anything. Uh, he was taking Spanish lessons. He asked how my son was doing, all those kind of, you know, conversations. And when it was time to leave, I ended up having to bring him back to his, to his apartment. Uh, that's a whole story. But I gave him a copy of the book I just published, Putting Meat at the American Table. Read it right away. Called my mother, not the next day, but the day after that, and said, you know, Louise, uh, my mother's name, uh, like Roger's book, but why didn't he write about kosher meat? And I'd like to talk to him about it. So she calls me up and says, you know, you should talk to Uncle Stu about it. Would you, would you give him a call since he wants to talk to you about this book? Uh, I didn't do it right away, and he died. He died really four or five days after that, uh, after that dinner. Um, and his question, maybe it was that, um, I'm not sure why, but the question about what about kosher meat really stuck in, in my mind, and it was really like, well, you know, if you write a book about eating meat in America, is it possible to do this without including kosher food? Are Jews really that marginal? That's really kind of what a part of his question was saying. I mean, how can you ignore that it's your historian of this of this world? And the other quest, part of his question, which was a little more hidden, but it was there too, which was, you know, Roger, you grew up in an observant home. Why didn't you think of this? Why didn't you look at this? You know, this is your uncle speaking. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, he passed away. So these are pretty serious questions to ask. And it just started me thinking. Um, it just, I just, you know, it's funny how you decide to write a book. This book took me 10 years to write. 
um, big piece of my life. I'm not a writer, as you can tell by the introduction. I have a lot of jobs. I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I work. So doing a book is a big decision uh, for me to do that. And the question stuck. I expanded it to look at kosher food more generally, and the book in many ways became more than just a book about you know, kosher law and modern food. It, it became a little bit of a meditation on being Jewish mm-hmm. and, and, and how to measure the acceptance of Jews in a modern society. How could an ancient set of laws, beginning in the Torah, developed you know, in the Talmud and all the rabbinic writings of, of 10th, 12th, 14th centuries, how could that be adapted in this modern industrial secular secular world, uh, how well had we have we done? Was in a way Stu's question: Are we accepted in this world? So, the focus, of course, is on the food and thinking about how kosher law gets gets into our modern food system. But throughout the stories of my family, and throughout, I'm thinking a little bit more than just the practical, but thinking about what do we make of all this? What do we make about the acceptances of some foods and the problems other foods have? in becoming accepted in our food system in the United States. It's interesting because I think you see that you've approached this both personally and as an historian, and it's interesting because it gives us a lens into, I think, the safe to say the Jewish immigrant story um, about what were those challenges of keeping kosher in America. And if we think of cultural identity, I think of grandparents and, and how did they incorporate that into their life, and what well, allowed yeah. for that? Well, those grandparent stories are all through the book, and, and, and yeah. one reason that that happened is that as I wrote this book, my mother lived in New York City. A lot of my research was in New York City, and I go visit her after I was in the archives, and you know, she was a practicing attorney. She had a doctoral degree in philosophy. She knew a few things. She'd ask me. We'd talk and argue, but she got sick. She got uh, essentially emphysema, and she dies halfway through the book. Uh, and these conversations, as she was getting sicker, they didn't have the edge they did when she was a, had enough breath. She had a hard time talking. So she told stories. She told stories about her mother and her father. She told stories of her experiences with, with David, you know, my father, when they were young, arguments their parents had over whether Sturgeon was kosher or not, because her side was conservative and my father's side was orthodox. And so, and, you know, when these stories are told to you by a parent who you know is, is slipping, you know, away from you. Um, they're vivid. They're powerful, and they're almost part of. They they really became part of the research because they were after I done. Re- they was interested in the archives, and these were experiences that were pertinent, that were relevant to telling the story. And so, it was almost like having a, a privileged position to say, you know, here's how one Jewish family, in an unexceptional way, dealt with this world of modern food. Food. You know, here one side did this, and the other side did that. And here's how they argued. Here's how they managed. It was a way of conveying that was part of my own background, as part of my own history you know, in this. I, I try to emphasize that this book is not a book about my family, per se. I'm not following that, that trail. But where relevant, where it, it fits, these stories you know, come in, um, because I think it helps make sense of this puzzle about how do you accommodate Jewish customs in a world which really is a Christian world, and really in which we really are a very small minority. How did this work out? It, well, I think it also tells a larger story. You, and you mentioned, you know, some of the debates uh, about whether a food was kosher or not. And you have a chapter, The Great Jello Controversy. Right, right. I, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that. 
Well, I mean, this is this is the dilemma of modern food and, and Judaism. What do you make of Jello? You know, it's advertised all over the place in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. They publish advertisements in, he- in Hebrew and Yiddish, you know, and it looks perfectly fine. You know, and a lot of Jews are gelatin, but, it, you know, it, it uses gelatin. And where does gelatin come from? It comes from animals. Well, what do we make about the source? You know, can we use gelatin because it has in some trace of it non-kosher cattle? Um, does it have pigs? Well, mm, that's a bigger problem because, you know, pigs are not allowed. It's in Leviticus, you know, but some rabbis had made some decisions that might have could be used to justify that. So it's, it's a, the whole Jello chapter is about trying to figure out modern food. And the rabbis, the big thing the rabbis have to face up to is that they don't know enough because they need to know science. And they can't find that in the Talmud. They can't find it in the Shulchan They have to turn to scientific evidence, and they have to learn how things are made in modern manufacturing in order to determine if they're kosher. So the Jello story is, is that. How do they figure out what to do with this gelatin? And they divide. The conservatives accept gelatin, accept Jello. So when I was a kid, we lived in a conservative house. We had Jello. If you were Orthodox, no, you could not have uh, Jello in your household because the Orthodox took a stricter line on, on gelatin and all that. So uh, that's, I mean, that's a story of just how hard it is to apply these rules from, again, antiquity to our modern world. And it was the um, Rabbi Tobias Geffen who made Coke kosher? Is that correct? Yes, that's the, that's so, a 1930 story. Yeah. That's a you know that's a incredible yes. uh, you know episode there. Where again, Tobias Geffen has to figure out what to do with Coca-Cola. Um, he's able to get the ingredients from Coke, all the ingredients, um, part because he he knows them uh, through Emory University, where his children attend a college. Um, and he has to figure this out as well. What to do with chemicals? How do we understand chemicals? And if you have a little bit of a chemical in, in a in a in a uh, product, is it nullified? You know, the kosher principle that non-kosher can be nullified in a larger amount. He ends up saying saying no. Um, but it's also a story of a rabbi who's not famous. He's a synagogue rabbi in Atlanta, Georgia. He's trained in the yeshivas of Lithuania. He knows you know, religious law. He knows it really, really well. But that's not his job, specifically, is to, is to be a big figure. But he's in Atlanta. Coke syrup is made in Atlanta. Ashkenazi tradition is you go to the rabbi in the place where it's made. And so he's asked about this, and he says, okay, I'll, I'll, figure, I'll figure this out. Uh, and he does. He makes it kosher, amazing. He gets Coke to change its ingredients so that it can be drunk by, by Jews. It's an amazing story. But in some ways, what's even more amazing is he never says anything more about it. You know, he has a personal diary. There's nothing about Coke in his personal diary. There's letters with his children. He never discusses this with his children, and he's in correspondence at the same time with the leading rabbis of Europe and America trying to figure this out. But no, he's just doing the job of the rabbi, the paskin, to rule, to understand new challenges to, uh, to a Jewish law. Um, and he makes decisions that become the basis for monocosher certification. It's really an uh, amazing person and, and, and an amazing consequence. Yeah, to, to find your way to that story is a delight. Um, the other person that you mentioned is Temple Grandin, um, mm. and I think that's a really interesting story. I mean, I, I came to know her through a previous job uh, where we did a piece about her, um, and I've also seen the impact with 
uh, my neighbors who are farmers who aren't Jewish, but they've sought out a local slaughterhouse that incorporates her principles, and it's brought them closer to uh, having a real appreciation for her Jewish tradition. And it seems like she's been able to sort of bridge two worlds, as it were. I wonder if you can expand on that. Well, the, the Tepa Grannon involvement in kosher slaughter is really unheralded. I mean, it, it's not known. Um, but she gets involved in the 70s when kosher slaughter is under a lot of pressure uh, from advocates of humane slaughter because they view the kosher practices of killing as harmful to animals, and especially the practice which said that animals have to be conscious at the time that its throat is cut by, by the shocket. Uh, Temple Granny gets involved, and she becomes an enormous defender of kosher slaughter, and she ends up saying that if done properly, that's her big point, if it's done properly, it is not just humane, it is the most humane method of slaughter. Um, and she, this, she gets her into a conversation with the Orthodox Union and with kosher supervisors, and she persuades them to make changes in how kosher slaughter takes place so that it's more humane and it's more, it's more acceptable to the humane slaughter advocates who aren't Jewish. And it's extraordinary. I mean, she's not Jewish. You know, she's, you know, she's autistic, as many people know. So right. she's, not, she's not a skilled communicator. Let's just put it that way. But she's, what convinces the rabbis is that she publishes article after article in, in two major areas. One is the trade journals of the meatpacking industry, you know, defending kosher slaughter and explaining the value of it. And then also in animal rights publications, where she defends kosher slaughter against critics, virulent critics, sometimes you know, anti-Semitic critics, who are saying that it's not uh, humane. And she persuades literally the entire humane animal movement in the United States to accept kosher slaughter. It is is an extraordinary, um, and again, to sort of see it firsthand for me was really powerful to find that it had such an impact on my neighbors who are farmers and who raise um, sheep, um, that then they sought out um, humane slaughter. and again, had a real appreciation and still do for all of the Jewish traditions that Temple Grandin tried to impress upon others. Another story you write about is um, Manischewitz wine. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, this is, again, really interesting about how you begin to expand um, the kosher movement and the products. Again, could you tell me a little bit more about that for our listeners? Well, well, well Manischewitz wine, I mean, it, it's, it's the, it's the most successful early kosher product. It's a crossover product. Um, by you know early 1950s, 80% or more of Manischewitz wine consumers are not Jewish. In fact, they're overwhelmingly African-American. Uh, and the company that's behind Manischewitz, which is the Monarch Wine Company, not the Manischewitz Company, little-known fact, uh, really develops this. And so some people may know that Sammy Davis, Jr., became a spokesperson for Manischewitz wine in the 1960s. And if any of you listeners want to have some fun, just go into Google and put in Sammy Davis Jr. Manischewitz wine, and you'll see an advertisement that he did about 1969 for, for Manischewitz wine. So they really reached out to, to, to non-Jewish consumers. Great success with African Americans. Uh, but there's a, there's a troubling piece there that they're entirely unsuccessful among non-Jewish white consumers. They won't have anything to do 
with Manischewitz wine, and it's not simply a matter of taste, because Manischewitz, there's other wines like Manischewitz at the time. They just, it just turns out that there's enormous resistance in the marketplace by you know, Gentile whites to Jewish wine, to kosher wine. And it's not just Manischewitz, it continues after a lot more dry wines come on the marketplace. I and mean, people here who are going for the Passover staters, a lot will buy dry kosher wines, maybe wines distributed by the Royal Wine Company, which does, does this, this kind. Um, and these kosher wines have become very, very good, but they still don't have the reach across the religious lines that, um, you know, you'd expect. That's more typical of kind of, of a lot of kosher products uh, today. Um, indeed, the only real crossover uh, kosher wine today is uh, Bartonura's Mos- uh, Moscato, which is another sweet wine. And the principal consumers of this who aren't Jews are, again, African Americans. So the wine story, mm, that's a little bit of Stu's question. You know, what's happened there? And the wine story is not a great story. I mean, we make some really good wine these days. But there's still a marketplace resistance to kosher wine. So looping back to your Uncle Stuart, who got you, actually, uh, whether he knew it or not, to you know write the book, I'm wondering if the story that you set out to tell surprised you or changed or was um, different than what you expected in the end. Well, it's... When you write a book, you know, you, you, you set out on a voyage, and you're not quite sure, you know, what road marks you're going to have or exactly where you're going to end up. Um, and I think, you know, I was surprised by the unevenness of it all. You know, I knew about a lot of industrial products becoming, you know, kosher certified, but I didn't really know about the resistance to kosher wine. And I also write, we even talked more about the, about the problems of having kosher meat available. I wasn't, I wasn't aware of that. Um, and it, it made, you, made me think about, about being Jewish. And I, I wouldn't say I changed, but I became much more aware of Jewishness, if you will, mm-hmm. and just how there are customs that Jews know, no matter really how observant you are. You know, we know about the holidays, we know about the traditions, and we know about certain things. And we're such a small minority that the rest of the world doesn't. And yet I think that you can't understate the importance of understanding what cultural heritage is all about. I mean, that's certainly something that we're dedicated to here at the Yiddish Book Center. And these stories become universal stories. It's, it's how we pass down and transmit all of these traditions and culture. And really, to understand them and to share them, as you have in this book, helps us, again, be more understanding of everybody because they're shared well, stories. Right. Well, I mean, the the... the to me, the, the core point about kosher law is that we care enough to argue. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, and, and when we argue, we don't just argue with the people around the table. You're arguing with Joseph Caro, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch. You're arguing with Moses Maimonides, you know, who wrote, who wrote the Mishnah Torah. You know, we're arguing with the rabbis who go back and forth you know, in the Mishnah. You know, what about this and what about that? And suppose we do this. And this argument means there's a community. It means there's continuity. So even if we disagree... The argument means we care. And it's at the core of who we are as Jews, I think, that kind of uh, exchange. Yes. yes I, I, I think it's a, yeah. Um, well, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, the book for our listeners is Kosher USA, How Coke Became Kosher and Other Tales of Modern Food. Our guest, Roger Horowitz. Um, keep writing and join us again, I hope. 
I hope so, too. And I do have more books of mine, but I can't say yet what I'm doing. Okay, well, we'll make sure our listeners read this first. <laughs> okay, thank you all. Thank, thank you, you. All. Take care. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org. This episode is produced by me, Alexa Sewing. And until next time, be well and be healthy.